listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Uh, before I begin today, let me say that I will not have a guest on today. Um, now, I wanted to spend today's show talking about miracles and more specifically talking about physically, scientifically verifiable miracles associated with the Catholic faith. And this is a special interest to me for two reasons. And it should be of general interest to Catholics for at least two other reasons. It's of special interest to me because, uh, as many of you may know, I grew up Jewish and uh, did not believe at all in any of the story of Christianity or any of the claims of Christianity. And I had never heard a credible account of a miracle associated with Catholicism until I was in my 30s. Um, I grew up, I had heard vague stories about medical healings at Lourdes and uh, heard the stories in the context of, you know, psychosomatic ailments or, or, you know, people imagining they feel better and stuff like that. And it was simply dismissed out of hand. I had no idea what the physically documented scientific proof was of, in fact, those medical miracles. I'd never heard of, um, any of the other physical miracles that have scientific evidence behind them. And I'll talk more about them at length, but things like uh, the miracle of the sun at Fatima, the uh, Tilma of Guadalupe, the Shroud of Turin, the Eucharistic, a uh, number of Eucharistic miracles uh, where the host turned into flesh and blood and still is scientifically identifiable as flesh and blood and so forth. The saints who lived on nothing but the Eucharist for 10 or 12 or 13 years in some cases. Uh, the stigmata, like Padre Pio having the stigmata, and with most of these miracles that I'm going to be talking about occurring in the 20th century and subject to real scientific investigation, which then means that there is some evidence which has to be addressed um, in one way or another. There's, there's a scientific data there, and a theory has to be hypothesized to explain that data. Uh, of course, we know the truth of the situation is that they are miracles because the Catholic Church is what it says it is and God is still active and so forth. But if one wants to reject that explanation, one has to, in good conscience, come up with another explanation. And the explanation that I don't care how much evidence you have, I refuse to believe it, doesn't really hold water. Anyway, so one of the reasons why this is of particular interest to me is because as a Jew growing up, I would have felt very differently about the claims of Christianity had anyone exposed me to these miracles. And another reason this is of interest to me is because before my conversion, I was a scientist and an engineer. I have a Bachelor of Science degree from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and I was quite proud of my scientific acumen and, and my scientific orientation and so forth. And um, so the scientific approach 
to the claims of Catholicism have a particular interest to me now. Now, there are two reasons why the fact of these miracles should be interested to um, the general Catholic world. One is we're all called upon to evangelize, and they are particularly appropriate means for evangelization in our time when everyone's looking for proof and everyone's skeptical of faith claims, essentially. Um, and the other reason is because they're very uh, confirming of our own faith. In other words, I don't know about you. I know in my case, I have, you know, good, good months and bad months and good weeks and bad weeks. And if I ever begin to doubt any aspects of the faith, it is very edifying to uh, pick up an account of one of these physical miracles is quite sobering. In fact, um, now the, um, so let me tell a couple of stories, um, uh, two personal stories to set the backdrop to uh, why I think we should really pay a lot to these scientifically verifiable Catholic, so to speak, miracles. Uh, two stories from my childhood. I alluded, uh, you know, I alluded to the role that it has in my uh, interest a moment ago. One is I went to Jewish religious education the entire time growing up from uh, when I was five until I went away to college. And in this religious education, especially when I was younger, I was continually asking my teachers and asking my rabbis, why did God used to perform miracles in the days of the Old Testament and no longer does? No one had an answer. They never had an answer. Um, and it was a kind of crisis of faith, because if we we're to believe that God was so active performing miracles, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago for Abraham and for Moses and so forth, why did the whole system change and why did he stop performing miracles? Uh, in fact, the answer is he didn't stop performing miracles. I was just ignorant of them. Uh, but certainly my entire religious landscape as a child and as a uh, adolescent would have been entirely different had I been aware of the continuing presence of miracles. Much less, of course, the fact that most of them are associated with the Catholic Church, which is extremely suspicious, so to speak. In other words, certainly implies that there is something very real to Catholicism. Uh, and I will tell one other um, story, which is uh, a very early stage of my conversion. Um, before my conversion really took place, uh, I was over at a uh, acquaintance's house who was a fallen away Catholic but a kind of new age, you know, mystically oriented new ager at the time that I visited him. And he had on his coffee table a book called something like The Greatest, The Hundred Greatest Miracles of Modern Times. It's one of these coffee table picture books. And uh, he left the room at one point to get some tea for us. And I was just idly leafing through this book on his coffee table. And I turned to the page dedicated to the miracle of Fatima. And I saw how... These children claimed the Blessed Virgin Mary had appeared to them, but more interestingly to me at the time, there was an account of the miracle of the sun, that there were 80 or 100,000 people there who all saw the sun in the sky uh, spinning and sending off colors and appearing to crash to the earth and so forth. I had never heard of Fatima. I had never heard of the miracle of the sun. Uh, my friend came back from the kitchen with the tea, and I pointed to that page in the book, and I said to him, is this true? Did this really happen? And he said, oh, yes. And my next question was, has anyone else ever heard of it? 
And of course he said, yeah, you know, almost all Catholics know about it. And my next question was, has anything else been written about it? Because I was very thirsty to find out more. And he said, oh yeah, just go to the public library and you'll find a dozen books on Fatima. And my uh, response at the moment was furious indignation. How could they have kept this a secret from me? How could I have spent the first 30 years of my life thinking that miracles no longer occurred and apparently they still do? So um, I guess that's by way of an exhortation that we as Catholics are sitting on this incredibly valuable um I don't want to say truth proving, but certainly evidence of the truth of Catholicism. And if we don't talk about the miracles and if we let non-Catholics and skeptics and so forth not know about them and not have to confront the fact of them, uh, we're doing the church an injustice. We're doing evangelization an injustice. And most of all, we're doing them an injustice. Uh, there's a, a famous quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said, uh, essentially, um, those who believe in miracles, rightly or wrongly, believe in them on the basis of the evidence. Those who disbelieve in miracles, rightly or wrongly, refuse to believe in them on the basis of faith. The, uh, the belief in miracles is based on evidence. There is subjective evidence. I'm not going to talk very much about that today, but there are... Um, Miracles where, uh, well, I'll just give one example, which is, uh, for instance, a curé of ours in the confessional, uh, or the Padre Pio also had the gift of reading souls, and people would come to him in the confessional or outside of the confessional sometimes, and Padre Pio would know things about them that he could not possibly know except miraculously. Um, those are very real miracles, and there are an awful lot of them, but it's hard to convince a skeptic of them because they can say the person, you know, the, the person made up the story or, um, you know, they overinterpreted the situation and so forth. But there are also physical miracles, miracles that can be put under a microscope, miracles that can be photographed for which science has no materialistic explanation. And those are what I want to um, focus on today. So uh, let me begin by reading a quote from our current Pope Francis from his encyclical Lumen Fidei from uh, 2013. In modernity, the light of faith that might have been considered sufficient for societies of old was felt to be of no use for new times, for a humanity come of age, proud of its rationality and anxious to explore the future in novel ways. Faith thus appeared to some as an illusory light, preventing mankind from boldly setting out in quest of knowledge. Faith was thus understood either as a leap in the dark, to be taken in the absence of light, driven by blind emotion, or as a subjective light, capable perhaps of warming the heart and bringing personal consolation, but not something which could be proposed to others as an objective and shared light which points the way. Uh, end of the citation. I think we've all been exposed to exactly that worldview, that that faith is some sort of uh, illusory light preventing mankind from boldly setting out in quest of the truth or simply something driven by blind emotion. However, 
Recent Eucharistic miracles, subjected to modern technical analyses, shine a light that conforms, that confirms the fundamental precepts of the faith and remind science that it cannot provide explanations for all of reality. These miracles provide proof of the objective real presence of the body and blood of the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Let me just add that what I'm reading from is a newsletter from um, an uh, abbey, a monastery in France, that uh, puts out these monthly newsletters, and the most recent one is on Eucharistic miracles. And uh, that I'll give contact information at the end of the show if anybody wants to subscribe to these uh, newsletters. They can get them uh, for without cost, either over the through the mail or um, or by email. As a matter of fact, I'll mention it now. The uh, website for this monastery, the monastery's name is Clairval, so the website is www.clairval.com. Clairval is spelled C-L-A-I-R-V-A-L.com. And if you um, go to that website, www.clairval.com, you can um, go to the English page and, and sign up for their newsletters. Continuing with the reading. Um, on August 18th, 1996, so this is, a, this is not ancient history, this is 1996, Father Alejandro Pezet celebrated Mass in the church in the center of the commercial district of Buenos Aires, Argentina. He had finished distributing Holy Communion when a woman alerted him that someone had discarded a host in the back of the church. Going to the spot, the priest found the defiled host. He placed it in a little container of water that he then placed in the tabernacle of the chapel of the Blessed Sacrament. On Monday, August 26th, on opening the tabernacle, he saw to his great astonishment that the host had become a bloody object. He informed Bishop Jorge Bergoglio, the auxiliary bishop of the diocese and the future pope, that's of course Pope Francis, who gave instructions to have the transformed host be professionally photographed. The photographs taken on September 6th clearly show that the host had become a piece of bloody flesh and had significantly grown in size. For three years it remained in the tabernacle, and the entire matter was kept secret. But observing that the host suffered no visible decomposition, Bishop Bergoglio decided to have it submitted to scientific analysis. In October 1999, analysis began on the samples of the host. This analysis led to the declaration in 2005 by Dr. Frederick Zugiba, an expert in cardiology and forensic pathology, quote, The analyzed material is a fragment of the heart muscle found in the wall of the left ventricle close to the valves. This muscle is responsible for the contraction of the heart. The left cardiac ventricle pumps blood to all parts of the body. The heart muscle is in an inflamed state and contains a large number of white blood cells. This indicates that the heart was alive at the time the sample was taken. I affirm that the heart was alive since white blood cells die outside a living organism. They require a living organism to sustain them. Thus, their presence indicates that the heart was alive when the sample was taken. What is more, these white blood cells have penetrated the tissue which further indicates that the heart had been under severe stress, as if the owner had been beaten severely about the chest. 
uh, end of the quote from the doctor. Two Australians, the journalist Mike Willisey and the lawyer Ron Tesorio, witnessed these tests. After the doctor had submitted his findings, he was informed the substance from which the sample had been taken dated from 1996. Dr. Zagiba asked, You have to explain one thing to me. If this sample came from a dead person, how could it be that while I was examining it, the cells of the sample were moving and pulsating? If the heart came from someone who had died in 1996, that is more than three years earlier, how could it still be alive? End of quote. Only then did Mike Willisey explain to Dr. Zugiba that the analyzed sample came from a consecrated host that had mysteriously transformed into bloody human flesh. Stunned by this information, the doctor replied, How and why can a consecrated host change its nature and become living human flesh and blood? This will remain an inexplicable mystery to science, a mystery totally beyond her competence. End of quote. So let me point out a few things here. One is the miracle occurred in again, not in history. At, at the analysis of began in 1999, that's three years later, and a doctor in radiology and forensic pathology analyzed the sample. Just being given the tissue and told to say where it came from. He said it came from um, living heart muscle had just been taken by the living heart muscle, that um, the owner had been severely beaten about the chest and that the tissue sample was still alive, so it must have just been taken from someone who was alive. Only after he came up with his conclusions was he told that the story that it had been, uh, it had been there for at least three years and that it had come from a host. And his conclusion was, that this is a mystery totally beyond the competence of science, which um, makes me leads me to this following comment, which is this is exactly the problem. The problem is that science, in uh, her arrogance, often presumes that nothing is beyond its competence, and therefore, if there is no quote scientific close quote explanation for something, it can't have happened. We don't have an explanation for it, so it can't be true. Um, the fact is that miracles are beyond the competence of science, and this very attitude of science, or of some scientists, I'll say, that if we don't have an explanation for it, it can't be true, is not, sci- not only not scientific, it's the opposite of scientific. Because the essence of science is you start with the evidence, you start with data, you develop a theory that explains the data, if that theory successfully explains the data, then you can hold on to the theory and eventually adopt it as, as presumably true. But if the theory is incapable of explaining the data, you have to throw away the theory and try to find a new theory which can explain the data. These miracles are data, especially when they're physically present and subject to photography and microscopes and, and so forth. They are data. They are evidence. If your theory 
That is, in this case, the theory that nothing exists except materialism and there is no spiritual world and there is no God is incapable of explaining the evidence. You don't throw away the evidence. You throw away the theory in favor of another theory which can explain the evidence. And, of course, the Catholic Church, the Catholic faith, we know it's not a theory, but if you simply considered it as a scientific hypothesis, to try on to see if it can explain the data, if it can explain the evidence, a truly scientific approach would conclude, boy, it does a perfect job of explaining the data, so we'd better take this theory seriously. Anyway, I'll read a little bit more about uh, Eucharistic miracles, and then we'll go to our break, which we usually take about halfway through the show. So let me go on to another Eucharistic miracle, um, the miracle of Lanciano. In Lanciano, in the Abruzzo region of Italy, a similar miracle took place around the year 750. A Basilian monk was having difficulty believing in the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. He prayed constantly for relief from the uncertainties that caused him such pain. One morning, still assailed by doubt, he began the celebration of Mass before the inhabitants of a neighboring village. Suddenly, after the consecration of the bread and wine, what he saw on the altar made his hands tremble, and he remained completely speechless for a moment that to the parishioners seemed an eternity. Then he gently tor- turned towards them and said, O oh, happy witnesses, to whom the blessed Lord, to refute my disbelief, willed to reveal himself in this blessed sacrament and make himself visible to our eyes. Come see our God so near to us, behold, the flesh and the blood of our beloved Jesus Christ. The host had become flesh and the wine blood. That very day, the rumor of the miracle traveled throughout the village and just as quickly reached the neighboring villages and spread all the way to Rome. This miracle remains visible for us today. The host become flesh and the wine become blood have remained perfectly attacked, intact for more than 12 centuries. In 1970, the Archbishop Lanciano and the Provincial Superior of the Conventual Franciscans at Abruzzo, with permission from Rome, asked Professor Eduardo Linoli, director of the hospital in Arezzo, to conduct a thorough scientific examination of the relics from the miracle that had occurred 12 centuries earlier. On March 4, 1971, the professor presented his conclusions. One, The miraculous flesh comes from the muscular striated tissue of the myrocardium, the heart. Two, the miraculous blood is real blood, as indisputably proven by chromatographic analysis. Three, the flesh and the blood are human, and immunological tests show that both belong to the blood type AB, the same blood type as that of the man of the Shroud of Turin, and the type most characteristic of Middle Eastern populations. Four, the proteins in the blood are distributed in the identical percentages found in normal, fresh blood. Five, no histological analysis found any trace of salt infiltrations or preservative substances used at the time for the purpose of embalming. Let us note again that when liquefied, the Eucharistic blood of Lanciano which is normally dried, retains all its chemical and physical properties without deteriorating in any manner whatsoever. 
whereas normally, 15 minutes after ordinary human blood is drawn, all the biological activities cease irreversibly. The medical report, published in 1971, aroused great interest in the scientific world. In 1973, the chief advisory board of the World Health Organization appointed a scientific commission to verify Professor Linoli's conclusions. Their work lasted 15 months and 500 examinations were carried out. The commission declared that it was living tissue showing all the clinical reactions found in living beings. Since the 8th century, the flesh and blood of Lanciano have remained as if they had just been taken that very day from a living being. The summary of the commission's work, published in New York and Geneva in December 1976, acknowledged that science, aware of its limits, was confronted with the impossibility of providing an explanation. Other experts have compared the lab reports written following the miracle of Buenos Aires with those produced for the miracle of Lanciano. These scientists, who did not know where the samples had come from, concluded from the reports that the two samples had come from the same person. Um, I, and now is probably a good time to take a short musical break. I apologize for my hoarseness, and uh, which I hope will be taken care of over this break. This is Roy Showman on Radio Maria with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. I'll be back in a few moments. If you lose your life for the sake of my name, if you leave behind all fortune and fame, then my heart shall be your home. Every child shall be your own. One grain falls to the ground, and a thousand or so follow me.
You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome back to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. We've been speaking today of uh, physical, scientifically verifiable miracles associated with the Catholic faith, and in particular, Eucharistic miracles. And I began the show by uh, talking about two of them, uh, both of which were subjected to the most rigorous scientific tests, avail- you know, 20th century scientific tests in the 1990s in one case and the 1970s in the other. And in both cases, it was found that the uh, host, which had miraculously turned into flesh and blood, had turned into genuine heart muscle tissue and genuine human blood, um, and that the, uh, the that tissue and that blood had physical characteristics which are inexplicable even if they had not begun as hosts because they remain they retained their uh, life liveliness they retained their living qualities even though in one case um it had been um you know in a in a tabernacle for 3 years and in another case it had been in a monstrance for 1200 years in both cases the tissue and the blood was that of uh, some tissue or blood that had just in a matter of minutes been removed from a living person. And uh, that not only that, but it turned out that both of these uh, samples of uh, heart muscle and, and blood, which the host had turned into and, uh, you know, uh, separated in time by 1200 years and separated by half the globe because one was in Argentina and the other was in Italy. Um, as I, the last sentence I read before the break reads, experts who compare the lab reports written following the miracle of Buenos Aires with the, those produced for the miracle of Lanciano, uh, these scientists who did not know where the samples had come from concluded that the two samples had come from the same person. That is, of course, Jesus Christ. So let me go on now with um, another uh, Eucharistic miracle. Well, actually, let me let me start uh, this section with a, a reading from Pope Francis, again from Lumen Fidei. In the encyclical Lumen Fidei, Pope Francis writes, quote, Slowly but surely, however, it would become evident that the light of autonomous reason is not enough to illumine the future. Ultimately, the future remains shadowy and fraught with fear of the unknown. As a result, humanity renounced the search for a great light, truth itself, in order to be content with smaller lights which illumine the fleeting moment, yet prove incapable of showing the way. Yet, in the absence of light, everything becomes confused. It is impossible to tell good from evil or the road to our destination from other roads, which take us in endless circles going nowhere. Uh, there is an urgent need, then, the Pope declares, to see once again that faith is a light, for once the flame of faith li- dies out, all other lights begin to dim. The light of faith is unique since it is capable of illuminating every aspect of human existence. A light this powerful cannot come from ourselves, but from a more primordial source. In a word, it must come from God. Faith is born of an encounter with a living God who calls us and reveals his love, a love which precedes us and upon which we can lean for security and for building our lives. Transformed by this love, we gain fresh vision, new eyes to see, 
we realize that it contains a great promise of fulfillment and that a vision of the future opens up before us. Faith received from God as a supernatural gift becomes a light for our way, guiding our journey through time. End of quote. In confirmation of the faith of the Church, the Lord wished to give the world a new proof of his love with another Eucharistic miracle in 2008, a miracle with features quite similar to those of the miracle of Buenos Aires. Let me interrupt here and, and flesh out what the connection is between that citation from Pope Francis and these Eucharistic miracles, which is basically um, the only light which enables us to intelligently navigate uh, through this life and through the world is the light of faith. Uh, faith does not contradict reason, and it certainly doesn't contradict science. It uh, incorporates it, it encompasses it. Um, it doesn't contradict it in the least, but it goes further and answers questions and resolves things which science is incapable of doing, in other words, which is outside the bounds of science. Science falls within the bounds of faith, but faith also addresses things which fall outside the bounds of science. These Eucharistic miracles fall outside the bounds of science. Science admits that it is incapable of addressing them or coming up with an explanation for them. Uh, there, the uh, explanation for them, of course, comes from faith. And since we're living in this uniquely scientific era, where everyone wants scientific proof of everything, uh, the Lord has uh, gifted us with these physically verifiable scientific miracles, so to speak, these Eucharistic miracles, to satisfy the particular demands of this age for physical proof in confirmation of the faith of the Church. As the last sentence I read says, in confirmation of the faith of the Church, the Lord wished to give the world a new proof of his love with these Eucharistic miracles. And in particular, I'm now going to talk about a Eucharistic miracle that occurred uh, just five or six years ago, actually seven years ago or eight years ago in 2008. On October 12th of that year, Father Jacek Ingelowitz celebrated Mass at the Church of St. Anthony of Padua in Sokokla, Poland. I apologize for not having correct Polish pronunciation. In the presence of 200 people. During the distribution of communion, a host fell to the ground. Father Jacek picked it up and placed it in a small silver liturgical vessel filled with water so that the host would dissolve and put it in, the, in a safe in the sacristy. For after a host is completely dissolved, the body of Christ is no longer present. Informed by Father Jacek, Father Stanislaw, the pastor, left the vessel in the safe for two weeks. He then observed that not only had the host not dissolved in the water, but a shape resembling a bloodstain had appeared. Stunned, I did not know what to think of it, Father Stanislaw later stated. My hands were trembling when I closed the safe again. I could hardly speak. He decided to refer the matter to Archbishop Edward Ozorowski, the Metropolitan of Bialystok, the neighboring city. When the Archbishop came to the town, he was shown the host, which had been placed on a corporal, on the host, he saw not only a blood stain, but something that resembled inorganic material. Father Jasek pointed out that it looked like the tissue that many of them analyzed in their biology classes. On January 5, 2009, 
the bishop asked two professors of medicine at the University of Bialystok, Maria Elizabeth Sabaniak-Lotoska and Stanislaw Sulkowski, to conduct an analysis of a fragment of the host. Both of the researchers had worked in the field of histopathology for over 30 years. Father Andrei Kakareko, the chancellor of the Metropolitan Curia of Bialystok, gave each of the experts a sample of the host. The study was conducted at the university's Institute of Pathology. When the samples were removed, the fragment of the host that remained connected to the tissue stayed closely united with the tissue to be analyzed without having lost any of its whiteness. Let me repeat that sentence. When the samples were removed, the fragment of the host that remained connected to the tissue stayed closely united with the tissue to be analyzed without having lost any of its whiteness. In other words, the sample consisted of a fragment of the host, which was still the normal white host appearing like the host appeared before the consecration, but that fragment of the white host remained closely united with the human tissue, with the bloody tissue part of the sample. After working separately, the two specialists arrived at the same conclusion. What they had been given came from human heart muscle tissue that was still live but in agony. Professor Skolkowski stated that he had observed the presence of, quote, many typical biomorphological indicators of heart muscle tissue, close quote, as well as visible damage in the form of tiny ruptures to fibers of the tissue. He added, quote, such changes can be observed only in living fibers, and they show evidence of rapid spasms of the heart muscle in the period just before death, close quote. Now, remember, that tissue he's describing was still connected to a fragment of white host, which still just looked like white host. Professor Lutowska confirmed this is living heart muscle tissue. On further reflection, she was astonished at the fact that the tissue remained alive after having been separated from the organism of which it was an integral part. It was a, quote, extraordinary phenomenon. As she explained, the host remained submerged in water for a long time and was then left on the corporal. Therefore, the tissue should have undergone the process of asphyxia, dying out. But we did not observe any such changes during our tests. According to the current state of knowledge in biology, we cannot explain this phenomenon scientifically. Also very intrigued by the way the heart tissue was connected to the consecrated host, she declared that, quote, this extraordinary phenomenon of interabsorption of the heart muscle tissue with the host, observed under the microscope and also by electron microscopy, proves that no human manipulation of the sample could have taken place. In fact, the structure of the myocardial fibers and the structure of the bread were so tightly bound that no human intervention could have caused it. Moreover, the blood from the host had the same characteristics of the blood from the Shroud of Turin and the miracle of Lanciano, that is group AB. So let me just um, underline that again. Uh, the, this extraordinary phenomenon of interabsorption of the heart muscle tissue with the host 
observed under the microscope and also by electron microscopy, proves that no human manipulation of the sample could have taken place. So you know, we no long, we no, do not just have the miracle of the host having become living heart muscle. We don't just have the miracle that a living heart muscle um, gives evidence continually of being part of a living organism, even though you know it's it's been separated from any possible connection with anything outside of itself for years and years and years. It still maintains all of the freshness of having just been removed from the living organism. Uh, we don't only have the miracle that it originated in a consecrated host, which transformed itself into that, but we also have the miracle that this sample is still partly um, consecrated host, in other words, having all of the uh, characteristics of uh, essentially a wafer of bread, and under the microscope and under the electron microscope, you see this fragment of the host, which is simply white host, you know, bread, essentially. And you also see the heart muscle. And the, uh, the, the, the two are interwoven so that one just becomes the other. One just kind of morphs into the other and merges with the other in a way that no human manipulation could have done. There would have been no way to weave together, so to speak, human heart muscle with a with a piece of wafer or a piece of um, host. So we also have that miracle. And on top of all of that, it shows all of the characteristics. It has the same blood type as um, every place else where you have one of these miraculous Eucharistic miracles, Lanciano and Buenos Aires, and also the Shroud of Turin, um, because, of course our Lord's blood type was a blood type and was type AB, and it is our Lord's blood in these Eucharistic miracles, and it is our Lord's blood on the Shroud of Turin. So let me um, just, um, I guess we're coming close to the end of the show, so I, I think I'll simply continue with this reading, make a few more um, observations. After having obtained the test results, the Archbishop informed the Apostolic Nuncio in Warsaw about them. The Apostolic Nuncio relayed the records to Rome for examination. In September 2009, the public, who had been aware of the two experts' report, began to come to Sokolka from all over Poland and even from Belarus and Lithuania. Sokolka saw an immediate increase in devotion to the Holy Eucharist. People come to pray at the Church for Broken Families, for children who have left the faith to obtain cures. After having officially declared that the tissue visible on the host was truly miraculous, the archbishop placed the host in an exposed monstrance for the devotion of the faithful in a chapel in the church of St. Anthony. With regard to the Eucharist, the church calls for the worship of Latria, that is, the adoration given to God alone, whether during the celebration of the Mass or outside it. Compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 286. In other words, the form of uh, worship that the Church calls for of the Eucharist is the unique form of worship, latria, reserved for God alone, a form of worship that the Church does not call for for any of the saints, even the Blessed Virgin Mary. There is a particular need, wrote St. John Paul II, to cultivate a lively awareness of Christ's real presence, 
both in the celebration of the Mass and in the worship of the Eucharist outside Mass. Um, let me repeat that. There is a particular need to cultivate a lively awareness of Christ's real presence, both in the celebration of Mass and in the worship of the Eucharist outside Mass. Now, I hope that most of us are aware that Eucharistic adoration takes place frequently and is, in fact, that worship of the Eucharist outside Mass, that worship of the Eucharist, which is reserved for God alone, because God is really and truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, as these scientifically verifiable Eucharistic miracles prove. Uh, Let me amend that a little bit. They are scientifically verifiable to be miracles. They aren't scientifically verifiable to be, in fact, the presence of God, because that falls outside the realm of science. But science can certainly conclude, if it's honest with itself, that what is going on here is miraculous and has no materialistic explanation. And in fact, the church has the explanation. The faith has the explanation, which is that somehow, in a way far beyond any of our true understandings, during the consecration at the Mass, the host, which had been a piece of bread, and the precious blood, which had been ordinary wine, truly get transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, true God and true man. So let me just conclude. Um, Eucharistic miracles are undeniable facts. They place before us the great reality, God exists, he became flesh, he is present and active in our history. He exposed himself to suffering and death to destroy death and give us life. The happiness we all seek depends on our relationship of love with him alone. In the encyclical Fides et Ratio, St. John Paul II wrote, different philosophical systems have lured people into believing that they are their own absolute master, able to decide their own destiny and future in complete autonomy, trusting only in themselves and their own powers but this can never be the grandeur of the human being who can find fulfillment only in choosing to enter the truth, to make a home under the shade of wisdom and dwell there. Only within this horizon of truth will people understand their freedom in its fullness and their call to know and love God as the supreme realization of their true self. Give information on the internet about all of these Eucharistic miracles. And if you want to um, get a copy of the, the newsletter that I've been reading from and uh, perhaps subscribe for no cost to the monastery's newsletters, the website is www.clairval.com. That's C L A I R V A L. It's a Benedictine monastery in France where I, not coincidentally, am an oblate. And uh, perhaps this wasn't a bad topic for the last show before the beginning of Lent, because uh, maybe uh, one of our Lenten practices, we could certainly do far worse than to resolve to spend a little bit more time in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament this Lent, and perhaps to participate and take advantage of Eucharistic adoration when it's offered to us in our parishes. And with that, let me express my prayers for all of you for a very good and fruitful and transformative Lent leading up to the joy of the resurrection at Easter. 
And thank you for listening today to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And I hope you join us again next week, same time uh, on Radio Maria. Thank you and bye for now.